And welcome back to episode number 10 of the Zach Evans podcast. And that's a big milestone. I remember kind of reading early on different statistics about different podcasts. And one of the things I came across was that most podcasts never make it to their 10th episode. Most people quit and stop posting by then. And so for us to make it to 10 is a big milestone. And because of that, I have a surprise, which is we're going to have a two-episode week this week. Uh, There was somebody at church who was like, hey, I'm enjoying the podcast. It's great. But really, just one a week? Like, come on. You need to go to two a week. And I was like, well, we'd love to do that. Uh, If you could clone me, that'd be great. But this week, we are going to do that. So we're going to have two episodes this week. The first one today, I'm really excited about because it's an amazing story that most people have never heard, which is the true story about the man known as St. Patrick. Most people have no idea who he is. They just hear, maybe they're a very staunch conservative Christian, they hear St. Patrick, and they think, I mean, I don't pray to saints, I don't know what that is, I'm out. Or they associate it with, you know, some of the, the hooliganism that happens around this time, and they go, I'm out. But if you stop for a second and you ask, I mean, well, who was this guy? The answer is incredible. This man was an amazing Christian who accomplished something that very few people in Christendom have ever accomplished, and he deserves honor and respect. Unfortunately, the holiday that bears his name is you know, kind of a hot mess, but he was an incredible man. So I'm very excited for you to hear about his story. So that's today. And then on Thursday, as advertised, we will have our question and answer episode, which I'm very excited about. We had some good questions, and that gives you, if you're listening to this, you know, 48 hours or so to get a question in. Maybe we can answer it. So feel free to post that on social media or DM that directly to me, and we'll see if we can get that in. That'll be on Thursday, and of course, that will also be available on video, uh, only on Spotify. So you have two ways to enjoy that, but double the content this week, so I hope that that is a blessing. Now, I do have a favor to ask of you, and that is this. So with having um, a, a business Facebook account, business Instagram account, you get to see, or I think they call it a professional account, you get to see all the analytics from the posts, and you see you know, how much reach you have and how well your posts are doing. And I can't tell you how big of a difference you sharing the posts makes. It makes a massive difference. The reach of whether it's a quote or an episode, new episode post, the reach of that when it has a handful of shares is so much bigger than the ones that don't have a lot of shares. And I know that maybe people aren't liking it when you share it or commenting. That doesn't mean that they don't see it. Because I can see on my side that they are seeing it. They are interacting with it. They are clicking on the link. So if you can share, especially that new podcast episode when it comes out on Tuesday morning, if you can share that on your personal page, that is huge. I mean, think about it. You know, we have um, a few followers on Facebook and it's growing every week. And then I have, I think, 2,300 friends on Facebook. But I mean, you multiply that when you share it on your feed and somebody else shares it on their feed, it can multiply very quickly. So you sharing has a huge, huge impact. And I can't thank you enough for doing it. And uh, 
I hope that uh, you'll continue to do that so that we can see the, the podcast grow. And of course, as always, please give us five stars, leave a great review, and tell others about the podcast. So episode number 10, Patrick the Saint. Who was this guy? What is his life all about? And why should we admire him? And I hope that this will be a blessing to you. So without further ado, here we go. Episode 10 entitled Patrick the Saint. Enjoy. Amos chapter 7 verse 14 will begin reading. The Bible says, Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. So Amos was a herdsman, a shepherd. He had a side job apparently selling fruit. But he wasn't a prophet, and yet God used him in a great way to reach the nation of Israel, much like the man that we are going to talk about today, which is the man commonly called St. Patrick. A lot of people don't know the actual story of who is called St. Patrick, and I will avoid using that particular term for him. I'll call him Patrick throughout the lesson, but St. Patrick's Day, of course, is named after him. When we think about St. Patrick's Day, we associate it with a certain kind of activity. And of course, there's, I guess, the milder version of wearing green and that type of fun. But it's associated with a lifestyle and a way of living now that's very unfortunate, especially when we consider who Patrick really was. Patrick, the saint, let's call him, because he was a saint of God, although, you know, we're not buying into the idea of Catholic sainthood. But Patrick would be very embarrassed by the way that his name is celebrated today. And that's a, that's a mild way of saying that. But I want to give you the true story of this man because really it is absolutely incredible. And every time I go through this, I'm just amazed at who this man was. So we'll speak for a few moments this morning on that subject, Patrick the Saint. First, we'll begin talking about Patrick's upbringing. The ironic thing about him is that he wasn't Irish. So he was actually British. He was born in the late 300s, not 1300s. He was raised in a God-fearing family in the country of Britain. Now, Britain was a lawless place, a lot of trouble for a young boy to get into. Not a good place at the time. His father, though, was a leader in his church. His grandfather was a priest, but Patrick did not believe in God. Patrick was an atheist. Now, at age 16, he was kidnapped by Irish pirates that invaded his hometown and attacked his residence. And he was kidnapped and taken to Ireland as a slave. Now, Ireland was even worse than Britain. It was just more barbaric and just a really violent place. Territories were controlled by, by warlords. But it was a country filled with paganism, the worship of false gods. The natives worshipped the earth and the wind. And even still, think about this, practice human sacrifices at that time. Patrick was sold to a king or a local chieftain named Milku, or Milchu, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, who put him to work herding pigs. And Patrick would spend day after day alone on a faraway hillside tending to the pigs. So he's 16 years old, kidnapped from his home, and now he's herding pigs on the backside of Ireland somewhere, scared, I'm sure, for his life. And of course, he wasn't the only one who was kidnapped. There were many people his age, anybody fit to work, was taken and basically forced into slavery at that time. 
Now, it was in this situation that Patrick began to turn his heart to God. It was while he was hurting these pigs that he admitted his sin and had a change of heart. And he believed that his slavery, along with thousands of other Brits, was directly a punishment from God for their atheism and lawlessness. That's the way he interpreted the event. So he didn't do what... It's funny how you have someone, in this case, who's an unsaved atheist. Something terrible happens in his life. And his conclusion from that, to some extent, is God is good and right for allowing this to happen to me because of what I've done. That's the conclusion of an atheist young man. And yet, we have many Christians who the same exact thing could happen to them, and their conclusion would be, God is unjust and bad for allowing this to happen to me, a righteous person. So here you have the beginning of this godly repentance beginning to take place in Patrick's heart. He said this, he said, I was then about 16 years of age. I knew not the true God, and I went into captivity to Ireland with many thousands of persons according to our deserts because we departed away from God and kept not his commandments. Now, his father, of course, was active in the church. His grandfather was a priest. But here he is, 16 years old, herding pigs, no Bible, no church, very little, I would say, structured religious instruction. He avoided uh, any form of religiosity for you know, the vast majority of his life. Plus, he's very young. Okay, so what does he do? Well, the only thing he can do in that case is pray, which is what he does. He just begins to pray, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. He has no Bible, no church, no pastor, no nothing. All he can do is pray. And I mean, so far it sounds a lot like the story of the prodigal son to some extent, and that's exactly kind of what the story mimics. He said this, he says, Now after I came to Ireland, tending flocks was my daily occupation. And constantly I used to pray in the daytime. Love of God and the fear of Him increased more and more, and faith grew and the Spirit was moved, so that in one day I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and at night nearly as many, so that I used to stay even in the woods and on the mountain to this end. And before daybreak, I used to be roused to prayer in snow, in frost, in rain. And I felt no hurt, nor was there any sluggishness in me, as I now see because the Spirit was then fervent within me. So here you have a young man who was so fervent in his spirit towards a God that he really doesn't know. He's praying, trying to seek and find God. He's praying all night in the rain and the snow. It's really incredible. Of course, days turn to weeks, weeks to months, months to six years. Six years as a slave herding pigs. Okay, so then during a time of prayer and fasting, after these six years, Patrick began to feel God speak to his heart and tell him that he would soon be free and return home. Patrick does escape, and he travels the 200 miles to the west coast of Ireland and boards a ship bound for Britain. He returns home to his family, where, I mean, no doubt they thought that they would never have seen him again, even feared, of course, that he was dead. All right, so then what did he do? Well, he gets home, then he devotes his life to God and began to study to become a minister. 
So he begins to place himself in the lineage of his family and says, I'm going to get active in the church. He begins studying for ministry. But the one thing he said he would never do, so he vows he'd go into ministry, but then he also vows, I will never return to Ireland. I will never go back. I think about when my dad, every time that he would drive through Gainesville, my dad would say, I would never live here. I do not want to live here. I don't want to be here. And uh, sure enough, just a few years later, he was living in Gainesville on Griffin Drive. So it works that way sometime. I just got back from um, Oklahoma City. I don't know if any of you have been to Oklahoma City. Don't bother. Okay, there's like, <laughs> there's nothing there. They have one tall building. That's it. Not the tall buildings like the mark of a great city or anything, but I expected more. There's nothing to do there other than they have the museum, uh, a couple of cool museums and stuff. But it's like there's nothing there. There's nothing. There's literally nothing to do. I thought, why are you people here? Like, you know, you could leave, right? Like, you don't. You don't have to be here. Cost of living's really low and that kind of thing. But I told the guys in the car we're driving around. I said, I hope that God never calls me to Oklahoma City. And I thought, as soon as I said that, I thought about dad's story. I was like, ah, I shouldn't have said that. But um, Patrick, I mean, obviously he never wanted to go back to Ireland. I think about, you know, my son, when he was born, uh, he, he was not breathing very well, not eating. His glucose, I think, was like nine. Anything below 30 is in critical condition. And uh, feeding tube. And, and we, you know, it was worse than we even realized at the time. And we, we could have easily lost him. His heart rate dropped uh, when he was in the womb. And so he went into the NICU. He was the biggest baby in the NICU. Like most of those babies are tiny. Mason's like this giant baby. He's like 10 pounds. You know, it was pretty awesome. Uh, we had wrestling matches and stuff. It was great. But um, I, every time I go back to the hospital and I see that wing, I see those doors and that smell. Um, it just brings back all those memories. And I think I don't want to ever go back in that area. I don't want to. I see the, the NICU windows there at the bottom of the left as you walk up that side of the hospital. So I, I understand, and I guess we could all relate to something in our life that we think, I don't ever want to go back there. But, you know, the, the truth is sometimes we don't have to. Sometimes God doesn't send us back into that thing. But often that's the thing that molded us for who we are supposed to be. And sometimes that thing is then inextricably linked to our life for the rest of our life. And that's not something that we want. It's not something that's true in every case. But in Patrick's case, the only reason that we even know who he was is because he didn't obey that impulse to avoid the thing that scarred him, the thing that he has PTSD about to some extent. He disobeyed that impulse when God spoke to him in a dream. Now, in this dream, and again, so sometimes very conservative Christians can get skeptical about things like dreams and things like that. And I understand that hesitancy, and I'm hesitant to accept those types of things as well. However, we do see God working like that in the New Testament. The argument that you can make is that the canon is closed, for example, and that there's no additional revelation. And that's true. However, it doesn't mean that God can't speak to you in agreement with already previously revealed truth. There's nothing that would preclude him from doing that. There is no newly revealed truth. There is no new truth revealed to us through God moving in our life. But the Holy Spirit often, the Holy Spirit does this to you. The Holy Spirit brings up a Bible verse in your heart, for example. I think about one time I was at somebody's house. We're having dinner. The person asked me a question no one has ever asked me before. Um, essentially, they asked this. They said, uh, you can't lose your salvation, obviously, but... Is it true that a person who wishes they were never saved 
or wishes they weren't saved is saved. Is that possible? Is it possible for a person who claims Christ, but then later they say, I wish that I was not saved. I wish I had never been saved. Is it possible for that person to be saved? And I'm like, that's such a nuanced and strange question that I didn't know the answer. And you've probably had this experience before too, where the Holy Spirit just, boop, here you go, here's the answer. Um, whether you're out soul winning at a door and counseling, like things just come up like from the back of your brain to your front. And you wonder like, who shipped it there? You know, that's the Holy Spirit. And the verse that he gave me was when Paul said, I wish that I were a curse for my brethren's sake. What does that mean? Well, there's only one thing a cursed means, to be a cursed from God. So Paul says, I wish that I could sacrifice myself and I could be lost that they might be saved. That was the level of his devotion. So then the question would be, is Paul saved in spite of that disposition? Yes, of course he is. Now you might say that's a favorable interpretation of that thing, and that's true, but it makes no difference what your motive is in relation to the question. So the Holy Spirit can bring already revealed truth to your mind. Yes? Okay, so there's no reason why he couldn't do that in a dreamlike fashion or something like that. And especially when it, it's maybe unrelated to the overall canon of Scripture, for example. So the top two reasons why Muslims convert to Christianity. Muslims who do convert to Christianity, there's two main reasons why. The first is that Jesus appeared to them in a dream. That's the first, that's the number one reason why Muslims convert to Christianity is because they say Jesus himself appeared to me in a dream. In fact, and there's a reason for that. It has to do with their culture. It has to do with the way, what they believe about dreams. They believe dreams are very, very powerful. And so God does, it seems, speak to them in this way. You can read a great book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi, who passed away a few years ago. But it was a dream that turned him to Christ as well. And it was a figurative dream. And everything in the dream represented something. And what's amazing about that, and this is a whole nother lesson, but just to substantiate Patrick's experience is all I'm trying to do. What was amazing about Nabil's dream was that everything in the dream corresponded with Muslim symbols. But then the way that the symbols were arranged in the dream destroyed Islam and set up Christ. Really incredible. There were different things that all represented something according to his understanding of Islam. And it's funny because he's on the phone with his mom. He calls his mom. Mama had a dream. His mom's big into that. He says, Mom, what does this mean? There was, I think, a big grasshopper or something in the dream. He's like, what does a grasshopper mean? So she goes out and gets the book, flips it open, says, it means this. He puts together the pieces in his dream, and it's literally Christ destroying Islam in his dream. And that turned him to Christ, which is really incredible when you think about it. So Patrick has a dream. And in his dream, a man named Victorious comes to him from Ireland with many letters. And he hands Patrick one of them. And, of course, Patrick begins to read it. And it was entitled, The Voice of the Irish. And while Patrick was reading the letter, he said, I thought I could hear the voices of the Irish people. And specifically, he said, they sounded like the people in the woods of Falkett near the Wester Sea. And what did they say in the dream or what did they say in the letter? In the letter, they said, we beseech thee, O holy youth, to come and walk once more among us. Now, Patrick's reaction wasn't, uh, yay, <laughs> his heart was broken and he was full of fear. He did not want to go back to Ireland. But many years later, he kind of resisted the call and struggled with this. But many years later, he obeyed the call to go back to Ireland as a missionary and begin preaching the gospel. And if my math is right, about 30 years after his escape 
Patrick would set sail on a small ship and return to Ireland. Now, it was much like he left it, obviously. Still a very tribal place, very violent place, full of paganism. Human sacrifice was still very common. But Patrick understood the danger. And he said this, I am ready to be murdered, betrayed, enslaved, whatever may come my way. And think about this, no mission board, no support. I like what uh, Patrick's mission board does. Patrick Jobway, missionary in Germany. They don't do a lot of phone calls. They don't do emails. They don't do a lot of that stuff. They don't really self-promote their missionaries. What they do is they trust God to move in people's hearts and that things will spread by word of mouth. And it was really amazing to see how quickly Patrick raised his support, just fully relying on God to get him on the mission field. Okay, well, here's an even more extreme example of that where Patrick has zero support whatsoever. Reminds me of Adoniram Judson. He went to Burma. There's a fantastic book. You should read it. It's called To the Golden Shore. It's incredible. It's maybe one of my top 10 favorite books that I've, I've read. It's just amazing. Yeah, the guy had no support. Zero. No one wanted to support this guy. So he just went. He just left. Patrick did the same thing. He just left. He just went. No contacts, no help. Just one man with the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, of course pagans would not be easily convinced. They worship many gods, the gods of the sky, the earth, and the water. But Patrick, of course, preached that there was only one God, the God of the Bible, and that that God loved them and came to this earth and died for their sins and rose again to give them life. And I love this story. The most dramatic thing that Patrick did was on the first Easter morning when he was back in Ireland, he decided to do something pretty dangerous and drastic to tell the people of Ireland about Christ. The pagan worshipers would celebrate the changing of the seasons on Easter morning by lighting a fire on top of a hill named Tara or Tara. And the rule was that no other light was allowed in the entire country at that time. So there was to be no kindled fire, no light anywhere in the country there at daybreak on that morning, except for the fire on top of that hill. But Patrick, of course, did not obey that commandment. The, the penalty for disobeying that rule was death. You would be killed on the spot. So what did he do? Patrick climbed to the top of the church on Slain Hill, it was called, and lit a forbidden fire there in the top. Everybody could see it. And so, of course, he was detained and brought before the chief. And the chief said, what are you doing? No one has ever done this before. We should have you killed. Explain yourself. Here's what Patrick told the king. Patrick said, I'm not a threat. I bring the new light, the light of Christ, the Savior of the world, the light of the world to Ireland. So he risked his life to put that symbol, to say Christ is the light of the world and the light of Christ is greater than the darkness of your paganism. Really incredible. Patrick would spend 29 years in Ireland. And you know, um, there's the, the myth, the part of the folklore around Patrick is that he drove the snakes out of Ireland, right? But you think about that. It's like, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, that's exactly what he did. That is what he did. Think about this. 
Patrick preached the gospel successfully. Many people believed. They were baptized by immersion, by the way. So Patrick was not a sprinkler. He did not do any of that. Patrick was very Baptist in his teaching and in his practice. Sometimes he would have as many as a thousand people a day baptized. And it's said that over those 29 years, Patrick baptized 120,000 people. 120,000 people baptized by Patrick in 29 years. He organized, of course, these new believers into churches, ordained pastors to lead them, and overall started 300 churches in Ireland. This man did drive the snakes out of Ireland. That's exactly what he did. You just have to define snake the right way. Patrick was known to sing and to write poetry. And his most famous work is entitled The Breastplate, and here's what it says. Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, King of my heart, Christ within me, Christ below me, Christ above me, never to part, Christ on my right hand, Christ on my left hand, Christ all around me, shield in strife, Christ in my sleeping, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising light of my life. Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, King of my heart, Christ within me, Christ below me, Christ above me, never to part. You know, I think it's uh, when you zoom out and you look at this man's life, it becomes even more of a tragedy that we commemorate his life the way that we do. I don't mean we, but the way that our society does. It's really a shame. And most people I know, and I've taught this before and told this story before, most people I know have never heard this story. Here's one thing that we got to realize, okay? Christians are way too reactionary. Way too reactionary. So you hear St. Patrick's Day, and you know, you hear the word saint, and you think Catholic, and then you see the cultural practice of it in society, and you say, ooh, yuck. And then all of a sudden, right, your investigation stops there. And you're like, I want nothing. I have nothing. To, I want nothing to do with that. It's just very surface. And you let the culture define what you think about somebody like a St. Patrick. Well, then you dig into that and you realize that this man was an incredible person. Okay, without that information, how are you as a Christian going to properly influence the practice that you see as bad? How are you going to influence maybe the removal of that pra practice and the instantiation of a proper honor of this man who truly deserves it? Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. Give honor to whom honor is due. Patrick is due honor. 300 churches, 120,000 people baptized in a pagan land where he's the only guy there. The entire Christian heritage of Ireland, which is, of course, majority Catholic now, goes back to Patrick. And just because he's claimed by Catholicism, and just because our culture has ruined the practice and turned it into something deviant, doesn't mean that we shouldn't cease to be so incredibly reactionary to everything that threatens our faith and begin to dig in a little bit into some of these issues. And we do this in other areas as well. And it, it frustrates me. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was at the college this week, I don't know if this will end up in the podcast, but when I was at the college this week, I was sitting in a Bible class, Baptist Distinctives, and the teacher, obviously very knowledgeable, very impressed with his uh, level of understanding, he was talking about baptism and how 
the Baptist position on baptism is correct, and he made a very good case. And he referenced Martin Luther, who I'm an admirer of, warts and all. There's a lot to criticize about Martin Luther. And he says, uh, he says, our good buddy Martin Luther, and everybody kind of snickers, and he's like, those of you who are new, uh, the reason why people are snickering is because they know that I'm not a fan of Martin Luther. I said, okay, well, fine. There's a lot of reasons to, to criticize him. And he says, anybody who kills Baptists is not my friend. So he said, anybody who killed Baptists is not my friend. And I just started wringing my hands. I was just like, oh my gosh. And that this one I've heard a million times. What he's referring to is uh, Luther and his friend Philip Melanchthon were very in support of a heavy-handed approach to dealing with a group of people known the Anabaptists. It is common Baptist myth that we came from the Anabaptists. That is not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Anabaptists, and by the way, we that term may have been used to throw on to people who were truly Baptist throughout the years, but the Anabaptists specifically were a group in the 1500s who were a cult. They established their own government within Germany. They refused to obey the rules. They developed their own currency. They established polygamy as a norm. Uh, they would do all, they would, I mean, they would, just a lot of sexual devi deviancy and theft and all types of really terrible things. And it was a huge problem. It was a massive problem from a political perspective and also from a religious perspective. And Luther, being a German, I mean, just read any of these guys. They're always angry about something, and uh, they're very extreme in their, in their writings, generally speaking. And he was definitely that way, and others were as well. He advocated for a very heavy-handed approach with dealing with them. But again, you have to understand his epistemology, which isn't this individualistic, individual rights culture that we live in today, which, by the way, Luther's... Luther's beliefs kind of sprung individuality and individual rights into the modern world. So it's funny that you would take a worldview that says, well, people have individual rights. They should not be transgressed for the sake of the feudalistic system. Right? That's, what we would, that's what we would say. Well, where did you get that idea? You got that idea from Martin Luther. That idea was dead. Martin Luther stormed that back. Now, the secularists would say that that goes back to the Renaissance. Incorrect. The impact of the Renaissance is completely overblown historically, completely overblown. It goes back to Martin Luther. People did not live through the philosophers. They lived through their religion. And Martin Luther is the one who burst the idea of individual rights. Why? Because now you have an individual relationship with God with no mediator on earth. Right? Okay. So the only reason you can really make the criticism from the standpoint of your epistemology is because you agree with Luther's basic premise about what an individual's relationship with God is like. So you have to give him credit for that. But then you also are misunderstanding who the Anabaptists were and who we were. You are buying into this very surface understanding that has just been copied and pasted. A lot of different pastors, I've heard other pastors say that as well. It's just patently false. Like It's just not true. But what is it? It's reactionary. It's look at modern day Lutherans. It's like, well, look at, uh, look, if you want to criticize Martin Luther, I'll give you something way better. Um, the best criticism of Martin Luther isn't his treatment of the Anabaptists. It's his treatment of the Jews. It's the terrible things he said about the Jews later in life that was probably spurned on by his illness. He was very ill later in life, very sporadic. Because earlier in his career, he was very kind and very supportive. You can read his writings of saying, listen, they can be brethren in Christ just like us, and we should treat them as such. Then later in life, is the complete opposite. But my point is this. We have to stop being so reactionary against things without 
really establishing a certain depth of knowledge in that area. Because it leads to these sophisms. And look, um, you don't see that in the New Testament, for example. You don't see Paul just reacting against what's happening in Corinth. What does he do? He takes five, six, seven chapters to make his case. This is a guy who thought deeply about the problem, and he worked it out according to the revelation he received from Jesus in Arabia. So this, this wasn't a guy who just reacted to whatever was going on. We do the same exact thing. If for, Think about this. If every Christian in the world knew the true story of Patrick, right? how would that maybe change in a small way our culture's understanding of Patrick? I mean, it would help. It certainly wouldn't hurt. But we back away from these things and avoid these things of fear of what's there. We're scared of what's there. And I think that's one thing that we need to try to remove from our life is that reactionary fear. Because, I mean, the story of Patrick is absolutely incredible. And this man deserves honor. He deserves a proper amount of honor. It's the story of a man who went from an atheist to a Christian, from a refugee to a missionary, from a slave to himself, setting the captors Free. Think about it. I mean, he was setting his captors free. It's really incredible. Because of him, as one observer wrote, an entire generation of Irish laid down the swords of battle, flung away the knives of sacrifice, and cast away the chains of slavery. That is who Patrick the Saint was. Hey guys, if you enjoyed that, make sure you rate, share, and follow the podcast. When you follow, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. And make sure you connect with us on social media at Zach Evans Podcast. God bless.